What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the planet today. It is Friday, December 2nd, 2022. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with our producer and co-host, Nick Chinusa. Nick, how is it going, buddy? Maddie, it's going pretty well over here, my man. Um, and I know it's not going too hot for you over there. It is your actual Jordan flu game. Yeah, you jinxed me every time I had a little cold. Now I actually have the flu. <laughs> um, yeah, so if I sound different, uh, if the show seems lower energy on my end, um, you just have to be nice to me, listeners. So um, no one make fun of me, and uh, you're welcome. <laughs> Yeah, and and you know what? Get your flu shots. This woke me up. This woke me up for sure. I want to get my flu shot. He was just telling me about it um, before we started this for the listeners out there. It does not sound fun. does not sound like a good time whatsoever. Yeah, don't get the flu. Um, Some housekeeping stuff that we have to say thank you for. Spotify Wrapped came out, was it yesterday now or two days ago by the time you're listening? Um, We have listeners in 30 different countries this year. So thank you for being one of those listeners. That was awesome. Yeah, that was so cool. We had like some crazy uh, countries I was like not expecting to have listeners in like Brazil, um, Ecuador. uh, What was the other one? I saw that I was like, Czech Republic. Yeah, I was like, wow, that is so cool. We, we cover some cool spots around the world, and it sounds like when we put those in the title, people listen. So that was cool. Um, yeah. Another thing, we were in the top 5% for most shared podcast on Spotify globally. Whoa! So thank you. That was an awesome stat. And let, <laughs> next year, let's be number one. Yeah, that was such a cool stat, too. Um, so like incredible, honestly. I don't even know how that's possible, but really, really fun. Yeah, 49% more listeners this year, 47% more followers this year, um, and it said 85% of our listeners started listening in 2022. So this is a huge year for us. Thank you for being a part of it, and uh, let's make sure all those numbers go up next year. Yes, for sure. Thank you guys so much. All right, let's do today's show now. Today, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way Monday and Friday. All right, time for our quick hits for the week. And the first one is by Graham Redfern of The Guardian, who writes, Record heat over Great Barrier Reef raises fears of second summer of coral bleaching. The northern part of the Great Barrier Reef experienced its hottest November since 1985 this year, according to data from NOAA. This is sparking fear of mass coral bleaching as the peak heat over the reef is not expected until February, which is summer in the southern hemisphere. Professor Terry Hughes of James Cook University said there's a good chance of a back-to-back bleaching event, which was not expected to happen until the middle of this century. Last summer, 91% of all individual reefs faced coral bleaching after record high ocean temperatures in December. A current NOAA forecast suggests that large parts of the reef will face significant bleaching by late January. Some areas will also see coral death due to the high heat. 
Bleaching is recoverable if the temperatures are not severe, but this summer's impending bleaching events risk ruining the growth of the Great Barrier Reef over recent years. Yeah, and most of the growth comes from fast-growing corals, which are also the corals most susceptible to bleaching. One important note to add is that local weather conditions will influence the sea temperatures, so something like cloudy conditions can offset some of that heat. Projections look like this summer will be a hot one for the reef, but there is a chance that it's less severe than we think. Professor Ovi Ho Goldberg, a pioneering coral bleaching scientist at the University of Queensland, said this is about the steady but rapid rise in ocean temperatures, and this is very worrying. Professor Ho Goldberg added the fact it's probably the warmest November on record over the reef, and given what we know about heat stress on corals, this does not bode well. Yeah, I mean, I remember we did a story a while ago about how the Great Barrier Reef was coming back and starting to show signs of life. And now we're facing another warm winter because of the, I can't remember if it's La Nina or the other one, Um, but we were facing like just around the globe, Mm -hmm. warmer temperatures. Facing these warmer temperatures is not going to do well for uh, the reef and for those corals that are fast growing. Yeah, and it's a shame that, you know, something I didn't really realize is most of the growth does come from those fast-growing corals, and that sounds good, you know, that there's a lot of rapid growth, but at the same time, those are also the ones that are most susceptible to bleaching and most susceptible to heat-related stress. So, yeah, they're quick to grow, but they're also quick to die off. Yeah, exactly. And it's just concerning, right, because the Great Barrier Reef is one of those biodiversity hotspots in the world that... If you want to look at it from a strictly human standpoint, yeah, it's really cool for tourism. It brings in a lot of money for eco-tourists and just for people who want to go scuba diving, snorkeling, whatever that is that they want to do. Yeah. But from a wildlife standpoint, there are so many animals that call the Great Barrier Reef home that are going to be impacted by this. And unfortunately, in an area that is a biodiversity hotspot, when something like that is lost, it has such a higher impact than we can really even think to realize because they live there for a reason and how many great barrier reefs are there (laughs) yeah right like it's it's not like if you move out of your home you can go pick up and buy a new home this is something where it's so unique and if we lose it they all lose that really unique ecosystem that they need to survive yeah exactly and then we lose all the exotic fish like the just the whole ecosystem is just shot at that point so yeah yeah oh gosh Well, let's move on to our next one here, and it is by Yale Environment 360's Fred Pierce, who writes, Fenced in, how the global rise of border walls is stifling wildlife. Border walls are nothing new, with countries using them to either keep invaders out or keep citizens in for hundreds of years. Today, they are used for slightly different reasons in certain locations, but the impacts of basically just cutting off these wildlife corridors has, you guessed it, some serious environmental impacts. An example listed in this article is the Polish government erecting an 18-foot-tall, 115-mile-long wall on its border with Belarus, which cuts through the middle of the Bialowieza forest. The forest is home to lynx, and some have been trapped on the Polish side of the wall due to construction. They are now unable to hunt, feed, and breed with the lynx on the Belarusian side of the wall, where the animals are much higher in number. 
In late January, more than 500 wildlife scientists asked the European Commission to halt Poland's construction of the wall due to devastating consequences, including the collapse of the Polish lowland lynx population that they predicted. Still, the wall was completed, and there's now a high chance of local extinction of the Polish lynx, also known as extirpation of the species. This is just one border wall of the 74 across the globe, but that number is six times higher than it was at the end of the Cold War. Border walls are becoming more popular, and with that, so are the environmental challenges faced by local wildlife. The issue is that many walls are popping up in more remote locations that were basically serving as these natural wildlife preserves. And with climate change causing more species to migrate, this is going to become increasingly problematic for those species. Yeah, a a study last year by Titley and colleagues concluded that by 2070, climate change will mean that some 35% of mammals globally will have more than half of their climate niches in countries in which they are not currently found. And it's important to address why are these sort of issues so problematic. Some barriers either kill directly with electric currents, razor wire, or by entangling animals that try to cross. But other border walls, border fences, just block migration routes and prevent access to vital resources such as watering holes or seasonal pastures. And some just deter animals in general with their roads, their patrols, or overall harsh lighting. So it's not a friendly environment Mm. for an animal if it's survivable at all. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So more animals are being cut off from their natural habitat or from other populations of the same species. This means they won't be able to breed with those populations, which can cause some genetic defects to pass down through generations. Yeah, there's just less chance to diversify the gene pool once this habitat fragmentation starts to occur. So to combat this, the Polish government installed 24 wildlife gates along its Belarusian border wall. And that's good, right? Not when those are not in use. And unfortunately, all 24 gates are closed and will remain closed, according to this article. They were more put in there to quiet adversaries of the wall than they were to fix a legitimate problem and to fix a legitimate concern that those adversaries had. Here in the U.S., the border with Mexico bisects a range of over 120 non-flying mammals. Both proposed and constructed border walls and fences have major wildlife implications. The jaguar's return to the southwest is at risk due to these barriers after the big cat had been extinct in the U.S. until recently being recolonized from Mexico. Ocelots are down to fewer than 100 individuals in the U.S., mostly living in Texas. If a continuous border wall was constructed, these cats would be part of the 34% of the U.S. non-flying terrestrial and freshwater animal species that would get cut off from 50% or more of their native range. So the good thing about these border walls is that they don't have to be permanent, but some of the stats that Nick just brought up and some of the things that we talked about a little bit earlier kind of just emphasize my biggest concerns whenever we hear news of new border walls popping up. Sometimes they're just wasteful, which, you know, you can get behind wasteful. It's not the worst issue when there's larger things going on. Sometimes they're proposed for xenophobic reasons, and and that is obviously 
way worse than just something being wasteful. So that's why I mentioned that wasteful is bad, but there are more important things in life. And sometimes these border walls, if they're not wasteful and they're not xenophobic, sometimes they're just environmentally damaging. And, and more often than not, they're at least two of those three, sometimes three of those three. But yeah, I think, you know, you could make a case for border walls, but at the end of the day, at what cost? And that's sort of the the main thing I'm going to come back to whenever we talk about any sort of permanent environmental fixture that really harms protected species, endangered species, threatened species, any sort of wildlife that's living in the area. Yeah. You know, at what cost is this construction going up? Yeah, exactly. Like you, you do have to consider what part you're playing by basically inserting yourself into what is a wild environment. And I don't understand why you would install 24 wildlife gates and then not use them and just keep them closed. What is the purpose of that? That's completely just a waste of putting a gate up. Like you're going to keep it closed anyway. And it's not even like they're going to cross through there anyway because of the the same, same things that we just talked about. Harsh lighting, patrols. Like if people are around this wall and it's just a gate they're not gonna they're not gonna walk in there even if it is a half a mile long i don't think that they would you know what i mean like they would have to be pretty careless to walk through that like that area yeah and you know there's ways to do it right there are definitely ways to make it so that wildlife can kind of be funneled towards the gates right um you know like strategically place things along the way that guide them to those gates and then once they find it once they know where it is there's ways to do that. But I don't know if this is the case. And either way, if they're not open on the Polish and Belarusian border, then what's the point? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And like, I'm thinking about, we did a story a while ago about um, how California was putting in highway overpasses that like were actually designed to look like a wild environment. Yep. So they, they built like a bridge or whatever that goes over a highway and instead of having the, um, the wildlife they have going over the bridge rather than running onto the highway. So yeah, that's a, that's a great example of doing a great job of allowing animals to adapt to an environment that we entered. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're going to take a quick break after that one. Um, I want you all to pay very close attention to the sponsor because they have been getting me through the last week (laughs) while I've been sick. Take me into a break. We got two more for you after that. The Planet Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance, daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT.
Welcome back to the planet today, folks. And next up, PFAS, chemicals last forever. A Clarkson professor found a way to neutralize them by North County Public Radio's Cecilia Clark. PFAS, or per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, aka forever chemicals, are found all over our everyday life and are extremely dangerous to human health because they do not break down. Chemical engineering professor Selma Medetovich Thagard of Clarkson University has been working on removing toxins from wastewater using an electrical process, and a colleague asked her to try this method on PFAS. These toxins are common in firefighting foams, cosmetics, Teflon, and they're used to make materials water, stain, or grease resistant. They've been linked to kidney, liver, and thyroid cancers, as well as other diseases. Professor Medetovich Thagard and a graduate student started putting a small amount of PFAS through an electrical plasma generator, and it worked. She explains that they use an ionized gas and shoot electrons through that gas. They basically ionize the chemicals, but five years after testing this, they now have a spinoff company that goes around in a large trailer to decontaminate industrial wastewater. They said that they use about as much energy as a large microwave oven and can run on solar power for each of those trailers. She said they're on really large mobile trailers where they can treat tens of gallons of water per minute. So they're mobile, scalable, and actually treating PFAS in industrial wastewater. This can be used to treat PFAS in sludge or landfill runoff. So they can also work on farms for liquid manure fertilizers prior to spreading. Which is so, so important whenever we talk about these because they're getting into our wastewater. And a lot of times those wastewater treatment facilities that we see around cities and around industrial centers, those are treating wastewater to make it useful again. And there's a ton of nutrients in wastewater. So if you treat it to remove chemicals, you can use it on farms in the food that we grow. There's no harm in that. Yeah. Where the harm comes from is when all of a sudden you have these chemicals that don't break down in the wastewater treatment facilities, getting into the food that we are growing to eat, getting into the water that we are going to drink. So to be able to treat it there and to be able to take these extremely toxic chemicals that are linked to dozens of types of cancer to get that out of the fertilizer that we're going to be putting into crops to grow food for us is so huge for both short term of getting it out of the water supply and long term getting it out of the food supply. This is major, major news. And I'm really, really excited to see that something like this is happening and hopefully going to become more and more popular now that this is out there. Yeah, I'm in complete agreement with you. What a huge breakthrough, like massive breakthrough. So cool that they were actually able to figure this out. Um, We have talked extensively on this podcast about the the harmfulness of uh, PFAS. And to know that we can have food that is PFAS free, like for certain, Mm -hmm. is really, really cool. And like very... Um, promising, and I think yeah. this is like a massive business opportunity. I'm sure private investment is jumping on this. It should be. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's good to see stuff like this where we talk a lot about problems on this show, and it's really important to do that. So I don't want to downplay that you and I do that often because mm-hmm. the first step to a lot of topics getting solved 
is bringing awareness to it. But yeah. I'm way more happy to talk about something like this where we've talked about the problem, we've speculated about the problem, and instead of saying, you know, I really hope somebody studies about it, in the same year we get to talk about an actual on-the-ground solution that's happening, and that's so awesome. Yeah, that really is, and it's like I think very rare too for our show to be able to like talk about something that's for so long and be like, yeah, this sucks, this is harmful, this is not good for the environment, not good for us yeah and to have it like actually have a solution or like there's an end of that that long hallway is like wow yeah and even if this isn't the solution i can guarantee that there are people studying what method they're using with this ionization of the pfas well you know what method they're using there how does this work when you extrapolate that out into things that have way higher concentrations of these chemicals so this might not be the answer But this is so much closer to that answer than we were before we read this article. Far and away. Agreed. Far and away. So closing point there. Earlier this year, the EPA issued new advisories lowering the acceptable levels of PFAS in drinking water, but no enforceable federal standards exist currently. It's also proposed that the most widely used PFAS chemicals be eligible for Superfund status, and it's created a new national PFAS testing strategy for small and underserved communities. So shout outs to the EPA for for doing something about these and bigger shout outs to Professor Selma Medetovich Thagard of Clarkson University. Yeah, huge shout out. That is so cool. Good for you guys. All right. Let's move into our last quick hit of the week, and it is by Benjamin Storo of E&E News, and it's titled, U.S. Renewable Energy Will Surge Past Coal and Nuclear by Year's End, published in Scientific American. Wind, solar, and hydropower will generate more than 20% of the power supply in the U.S. by year end, which is good, which is exciting, which is necessary. You know, all of those good adjectives that we want to use here. This is one of those stories. The question of whether or not renewables can grow fast enough to meet our climate goals, that still remains, unfortunately. Wind and solar have been continuously impacted by supply chain constraints, which have made the goals set out in the Inflation Reduction Act tougher to reach. That goal is to cut emissions by 40% below 2005 levels by 2030. Most analysts think that the $369 billion in clean energy investments provided in the IRA will be able to take on these challenges, but it may take some time before the impacts of the law are actually felt. The IRA's emissions reductions are relying on doubling the rate of renewables installations that we saw across 2020 and 2021. So every year that that rate does not double makes it harder to reach those goals. We're trending higher with renewable installations growing 58% compared to 2019 levels, but this year simply did not reach the levels that we need it to. Through September, only 11 gigawatts of wind and solar have been installed this year, and the U.S. installed 25 gigawatts annually between 2020 and 2021. So researchers at Princeton University estimate that we need to install roughly 50 gigawatts between 2022 and 2024 to meet our goals, which means we're about 39 gigawatts behind where they were hoping we were going to be this year. So the next two years need to see even more rapid growth. 
Yeah, much of the issue in growth this year comes from supply chain issues and the uncertainty before the IRA was signed into law. Renewable energy incentives had to be reestablished by Congress every few years, but the IRA established these incentives for the next decade, which makes financing easier and more reliable and should steadily increase production in the coming years. Yeah, I could tell you firsthand from someone working in solar, it was very relieving when this bill passed and became a law because all of a sudden we're going from how do you finance projects not really knowing what the next steps are right to okay, we have a huge federal incentive along with all of our state and some local incentives to put solar in fields, to put solar on rooftops, to put solar on homes. And I know that the wind industry is sitting there saying the same thing, except, you know, you're not going to put wind on top of homes. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's also important to remember that renewable projects are costly. They don't just pop up out of nowhere and they don't just pop up tomorrow if you say, hey, I want solar on my roof. We can kind of treat this year as a big investment year, knowing that the next few years are big build years. So, like I said, these numbers for this year, they're lower than we need them to be. They leave a lot to be desired. But I do have hope that we will get there. And I hope that as a listener, you have the same takeaway that solar, wind, geothermal, they take time. So maybe this year wasn't where it needs to be. We can get there on average by 2024, as long as everyone has the same goals. Yeah, agreed. I mean, it's we've only seen growth, you know, like obviously supply chain issues. It was bound to happen after a pandemic. Mm -hmm. But now that the IRA is signed into law, we should be, you know, full foot on the gas now for renewables. Mm -hmm. And hopefully we are. Hopefully we are. Yeah, and I think that the next stat we're going to say is going to calm any sort of concerns people might have. Um, but the article concludes by stating that the Energy Information Administration thinks gas will fall from 38% of U.S. power generation this year to 36% next year, while coal will decline from 20% to 19%. That decline is due to a mix of a weaker economy, a cooler summer, and grown renewables, which are projected to increase to 24% of U.S. power generation next year. So fossil fuels are projected to keep going down. Renewables are projected to keep going up. And let's hope that instead of 24%, we're looking more like 25 or 26. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm a little shocked, honestly, that the numbers are not lower, specifically for coal with a lot of plants like closing down and having dates for for closing down. I'm shocked that it's only going from 20 to 19 projected. Yeah. We'll see. I don't know. You know, this, this next year could be completely different than what we expect or... You know, and especially with world politics and stuff like that, you have, you have no idea what, what the world could throw at you. So Yeah, and you know what? Just like for the planet today, I'm predicting a big year for renewables in 2023. But for now, that'll do it for today's episode. On Monday, we're going to be back for a Monday mini-sode. Yes, our last short introductory episode of the year. So share it with one friend or maybe more. One last time for us in 2022. Yeah, please do. You have helped the show grow so much already if you've shared it with one person. So keep that up. Every time you do it, just know that we are thanking you. Until then, please go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can. Follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. I know I owe you a couple clips. I've been uh, 
out of commission with the flu, but I will get those up soon. Send us an email at planettodaypod at gmail.com and follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. Nick Janusa produces our show and makes all of our music. Nick, where can people hear more from you? I'm taking my allotted time this week to say what a fantastic job in your Jordan flu game <laughs> this week. Fantastic work, Matt. Well, if you like the sound of my awful raspy voice, we're about to record Monday's show so I can go to sleep and, re- and rest up this weekend. Um, so you get one more episode of me sounding like this. Our logo is made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here on Monday. Peace. Peace.